Good morning. Good morning. Bless you, church. Good morning. All right. Everybody alive and well? All right. Good fellowship. We uh, had a week of vacation, so we are rested and uh, fired up. So that's uh, thanks for your prayers. We had a wonderful time up in Michigan. And uh, uh, we're going to be diving in in kingdom love uh, this morning to uh, Matthew chapter 13. We're going through the parables of Jesus where he talks about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is like, or the kingdom of heaven is like. So we're going to continue in that little journey we're on today. And we're learning how to think about the kingdom, how to talk about the kingdom, and then how to bring the kingdom with us uh, as we love our neighbors and love those around us. And uh, the kingdom of God uh, is infinitely interesting, satisfying, challenging, and we're going to see a lot about that today. Uh, before I dive into that, you can turn in your Bibles to Matthew 13. And let me just say that our good friend Moran Rosenblit from Israel will be visiting next Sunday. So Moran is the founder of Hope for Israel Ministries. And as he usually does, he will bring uh, fresh teaching from Jerusalem. And he will update us on what's going on in Israel uh, and also what's going on in his ministry there. So what we'll do, as we usually do, is we'll take a love offering uh, for the support of his ministry. So there'll be two offerings next Sunday, and hopefully you can prepare for that and be ready to participate as the Holy Spirit leads you, uh, as we try to bless him as he tours a number of uh, friendly churches in the United States. Um, All right, so uh, we have been... Diving into the kingdom. I loved Jamie's message last week. That was awesome, wasn't it? Wasn't it awesome? Really, really a a clear and challenging message in the scriptures. I want to repeat what he did last week in defining the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven because uh, sometimes we, we think we don't live in a kingdom normally day to day. We live in a country that rebelled against the kingdom Uh, So the whole kingdom idea is kind of foreign to us. And so this definition, I think, really helps. Uh, The kingdom is the kingly rule of God, the Father, over creation and people, initiated by the ministry of Jesus Christ and sustained by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. This kingdom is here and now, but will not be fully realized until the return of Christ. The kingdom of God advances as you and I acknowledge the king's authority and orient our lives according to his will. So we get to plug into that kingdom. We get to participate in that kingdom. We get to bring that kingdom uh, through our daily lives. And let me give you just a short story on that from last week. We were on vacation. We were at a lake, and uh, during the week, uh, we, I had intended, I'd been praying about doing an outreach, so I invited, uh, there were four of us that went and we, to do an outreach. So we went to the Kroger in Sturgis, Michigan, where we were staying, and on the way, we just prayed and we just asked God to give us some divine appointments, asked God to give us people to pray with, uh, and that we could bring the kingdom. So we parked the car, and there's four of us. There's Marianne and myself, and then there's Lydia, our babysitter, 
uh, who's like 19, and then there's Ozzy, my grandson, who's five. So we've been asking God for a chance to pray with people. So we get out of the car, we walk into the store, and on the left, the last car before you get to the front door was open, and there was a, one of those electric driving carts, shopping carts. And uh, this lady, uh, who was obviously having a lot of trouble, had driven the car, the cart, out of the store with her stuff. She'd put it in the, her vehicle, and she was getting ready to go. And so we stopped, and we said, Hey, um, could we help you maybe by driving this cart back to the store so you don't have to walk back and forth to your car? And she goes, Oh, I would love that. And so we uh, introduced ourselves, and we asked her how she was doing. And she said, You wouldn't believe this, but I was on a respirator for 22 days. And they just took me off four days ago. And I've got all kinds of things going on, but I'm getting better. And I said, well, we were driving here and we wanted to bring the kingdom of God to someone and pray with them. And you're that person. What's your name? And she said, I'm Kathy. So she told us a little bit about what was going on. And so we started to pray for her. And I just encouraged Ozzy, just, just say, get well in the name of Jesus. That's all you have to say. And so he did. And you could feel the Holy Spirit, the kingdom of God, boom, right there. In the parking lot at Kroger with my five-year-old grandson. And then when we got done praying, she goes, you guys are angels. What, what brought you here? He said, we just asked God for a divine appointment. And you're it, Kathy. And so we uh, talked to her a little bit more. And then uh, she, it turned out that she knew Jesus. She was going to a church. So we, uh, I said to Ozzy, uh, give your sister in Christ a hug. And when he hugged her, you could, you could, I mean, the whole, this love just started pouring out everywhere. And you could see how she was affected by that. So we go into the store, wander around some more, looking for people to pray with. And there was another lady in a, a similar electric cart who was in line and um, she was handing money over to the cashier and I said to her ma'am would you would you mind if we came with you and helped you get your groceries in your car and drive this thing back here and uh, she looked up and she said no thanks Um, I'm good and I said so how are you going to you know how are you going to get the the cart back she said it's fine and uh, anyway I have to take the bus home I'm thinking, bus in a small town? Like I didn't understand that. So we looked for her. We finished. We were behind her in line. We finished. We looked for her, and we couldn't find her. But there were two people, one willing to receive, one open to receive, the other one not open to receive. And I don't know. Uh, I know this woman is a, is a follower of Jesus. I don't know this one. I don't, we never got to talk to her about her story. But it feeds into this parable that we're going to look at today because uh, when we go out uh, and we get more outward, uh, God's going to make appointments for us and some of them are going to be great and some of them are going to be no thank you. And we just have to recognize that's just the way it's going to be. Make sense? So let's dive into today's kingdom parable. It's, uh, I've titled it The Net and it's in Matthew 13 verses 47 to 50. It's a really powerful call to kingdom accountability by Jesus. So uh, let's read uh, Matthew 13, 47 and 48 together. It should be up on the screen. Once again, 
You can say that with me. Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore. Then they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets, but threw the bad away. The very words of God. Father, open our eyes to what you want to show us in this parable this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So this is a picture which is actually still going on the Sea of Galilee today. I've got some pictures here for you. But this is the net that they would, they would lay out and then they'd pull it to shore and all the fish would get caught in the net. Uh, there you see them uh, putting the net out. There's another picture, I think, uh, where they're pulling it into the boat instead of pulling it on the shore. And then the last picture is this uh, fisherman sorting out the good and the bad. Um, it's a real clear picture of what it's going to be. And of course, these fishermen are still working today. And a Jewish fisherman, the fish that are good, according to Leviticus, is anything with fins and scales is good. Anything that doesn't have fins and scales is not clean for a Jewish person to eat. That's bad. So obviously Jesus is referring to a very common situation where the dividing of the net will take place according to good and bad. Uh, Now, let's see about Jesus giving the interpretation of this. He says in verses 49 and 50, this is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The words that Jesus speaks here are very similar to the words that are Uh, that he ended the parable of the wheat and the weeds with in verse 42, uh, the same uh, exact formula of words. And this is Jesus' language for describing the judgment that is coming at the end. We learned in the parable of the wheat and the weeds that the judgment is being deferred. And we learned that that was because of God's grace to allow uh, people time to come into the kingdom. Here... Same idea. And now we see that, this, that there's an outcome at the end. Those that are going to be with God and those that are going to be eternally separated from God. And we can know this from all the different references that Jesus has to the judgment, uh, the, the blazing furnace, uh, the use of the word hell, Gehenna. Uh, this is all of the teaching of Jesus all the way through the scriptures. And so, and I love the way he just says, this is how it will be at the end of the age. This is how it will be. And yet, there are many who doubt the words of Jesus. There are many who have put crazy interpretations on what is a fairly straightforward passage. And um, most of this is a misunderstanding of who God is but also uh, some of it is just outright fabrication. So you have three generally uh, used interpretations as to why what Jesus says here doesn't mean what it pretty clearly means. And let me give you the three. You may have heard them before. Uh, The first is that God is too loving to do such a thing uh, to anyone. And we hear this over and over again. Books have been written on it. Uh, This is a very common interpretation because 
people identify God as a God who loves, and he is a God of love, but they put a human definition of love on that, and they forget all the other attributes of God that go fully into his eternal being. So that's number one. Number two is that punishment in the furnace only lasts for a time. And they, they, use, uh, a, they use the fact that the word in, in the original language there can mean a time or it can mean forever. Jesus clearly means forever, but they say for a time. So this is where we get the doctrine of purgatory. You'll go in and you'll burn for a while, and then if enough people pray for you, uh, then you'll get out of there, and eventually everybody will get out of there. And that, that is the... Uh, now, they, they don't usually then say, well, also the word for eternal life is exactly the same word. Then is that also temporary? Is that also temporary? So when Jesus says eternal life, he means forever eternal. And when he means eternal separation in the furnace, he means forever. So that's number two. And number three is that there's a third option. There's a third option that you can see. There's the kingdom of Satan. There's the kingdom of God. And then there's the undecided. It's like an election poll. You know, you've got the undecided. And... Uh, that, that is the three most common explanations that you'll hear. So let's, let's look at uh, this nature of God. And I just want to cover this briefly because I think it's really important. So I encourage you to read this book, The Knowledge of the Holy. Uh, it's a book that I've been working through the last couple of months. It's a, by A.W. Tozer. It is also a book that our whole family is working through now. Um, and something that we're really enjoying and going to be discussing over the next several months. Um, And he talks about the holiness of God, the justice of God, the mercy of God, the grace of God, among other attributes. And what he teaches in this book is that God is all those things perfectly all the time. So it's not like today he's holy and tomorrow he's just, and then Thursday, he's merciful. And then Friday, he's gracious. And he kind of mix and matches. He's like that all the time. That's who he is all the time in perfect measure. So his goodness is uh, defined as he is good because he loves good and he hates evil. That's part of his goodness. Justice is he hates sin. He must punish sin. It would be crazy if God said, hey, by the way, the Ten Commandments, I was just kidding, I'm going to sweep them under the rug. Then what kind of a God is that? So he needed to keep his holiness, his perfection, his altogether unlike usness, his justice in his mercy, in his grace, all operating at 100.0% all the time. Now, how does he do that. And so it turns out that his compassion flows out of his goodness. His mercy flows out of his goodness, but his goodness without justice, his goodness without justice is not goodness. See what I'm saying? Right? Tracking? So got holy, 
uh, and, and, and just and merciful and gracious. How does he make that work? And so Tozer goes on and he says, how God can be just and still justify the unjust is found in the Christian doctrine of redemption. It is that through the work of Christ in atonement on the cross, justice is not violated. But actually it's satisfied when God spares a sinner. How is that? Well, without changing his standard. It says that redemptive theology teaches that mercy does not become effective toward a man until justice has done its work. So the just penalty for sin was exacted when Christ, our substitute, died on the cross for us. That's when justice was paid for. However unpleasant this may sound to the ear of the natural man, it has ever been sweet to the ear of those of faith. Millions have been morally and spiritually transformed by this message, this good news, and they have lived lives of great moral power and died at last peacefully, trusting in it. And he goes on to say, But when the penitent sinner casts himself upon Christ for salvation, the moral situation is reversed. Justice confronts the change situation and pronounces the believing person just. Thus, justice actually goes over to the side of God's trusting children. This is the meaning of those daring words of the Apostle John. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So this, my friends, is the good news. No matter what you came in with here this morning, if you had an argument on the way to church and said things that were not nice to your spouse, uh, if you have a broken relationship, if you have a bad attitude, if you are wondering whether God is really trustworthy, he is now clearly saying that those who trust him are like good fish. And those who don't are like bad fish. Those who have received forgiveness are good fish. Those who have not received forgiveness are not good fish. And so he has given the good news to us this morning to stand on and to receive uh, uh, completely. But he also reminds us that he continues to be 100% just. So Tozer continues, he says, But God's justice stands forever against the sinner in utter severity. The vague and tenuous hope that God is too kind to punish the ungodly has become a deadly opiate for the consciences of millions. It hushes their fears and allows them to practice all pleasant forms of iniquity while death draws every day nearer and the command to repent goes unregarded. As responsible moral beings, we dare not so trifle with our eternal future. So he must remain holy and he must execute justice. And the only way for him to do that and to be merciful and gracious towards all of us who have sinned is the cross. This is the only way. And so as we get ready to celebrate communion today, we're going to remind ourselves that the body and blood of Jesus Christ were given for us. If you've never asked God to forgive your sin, 
then make today the day that you do that because he will forgive you. He will forgive you. And just so you, you may be doubting whether what you've done is unforgivable or not, there is no unforgivable sin. There is no unforgivable sin to those who are willing to repent and turn to Christ. No matter who you are or what you have done, it says in Romans 3, that this cross paid the price for you. Now, many will say, well, the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are different. And this is why the God of the New Testament is the God of love. Well, uh, if we look at our Bibles, we will notice that mercy and the grace of God is talked about more than four times in the Old Testament than it is in the New Testament. God has not changed. So we have to remember, Tozer says this, if we could remember that the divine mercy is not a temporary mood, but an attribute of God's eternal being, we would no longer fear that will someday cease to be. Mercy never began to be, but from eternity it was. So it will never cease to be. And that's why his unchanging character reminds us that he is faithful always. And his mercy and his grace always, always, 100% of the time, work. And his justice and holiness, 100% of the time, work. And the only way we can bring those together is in the cross of Christ to celebrate the communion that we will celebrate today, the union that Jesus earned for us back with the Father. Amen? Amen. All right, now, and even if you have come to the well one million times before, if you are repentant today, you are forgiven today. Anybody here been over and over down that track? Anybody here? Huh? Okay. I've got good news for you. That's included. That's included. So don't let the enemy talk to you and like you're useless. Don't do that. Shut that voice off in Jesus' name. Come on your knees to the cross. Ask for forgiveness and you will be forgiven. That's the good news. All right, so that should prompt two questions then. Number one, where am I in all of this? Where am I? I'm, in, I'm flopping around in the net, and where am I in the net? And God wants us to know for sure where we are. And he's given us at least three ways to know that. Number one, believing Jesus at his word. Like actually taking Jesus at his word, like he says here, the separation that is coming. But he says, the kingdom's like this pearl of great price, this hidden treasure. It's worth everything. That's what we learned last week, right? It's worth everything. All of us. It's worth all that, all that we have are and ever will be. But he says, repent and believe. He says, you've got to be born again from above. You need to go through the birth of the Holy Spirit. And you know when that's happened in your life because you begin to change. You can't have God moving in without knowing that things are different. You hear his voice. You trust him. And you seek first his kingdom. These are all things that he says. This is this entire series, if you will, in a nutshell. Is believe Jesus. 
what he says about the kingdom. It's going to happen exactly. It's going to happen exactly the way he says it's going to happen. The second thing that we can do, you can move to that slide, is to know the Father's goodness. The Father's goodness is included with the Father's hate of everything evil. The Father's goodness includes his justice and his mercy and his grace. These are all attributes that are part of him. But knowing that, knowing that, and knowing that he's going to get everything made right. And he will not stop until it's all made right. And so the Father's unbelievably good. If you've never experienced the goodness of the Father, go to our prayer teams this morning and just ask them to pray over you the goodness of the Father. And then finally, seeing the work of the Spirit. And uh, the Spirit moves in our lives and changes things. And we can see that. Now Peter, who's a really good fisherman, he gives his take on the work of the Spirit in the last letter that he wrote before he died. He says, His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. Through these He has given us His very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. You have the Spirit in you. You have divine power. And then you are participating in the divine nature. And the Spirit gives you the ability to move away from the corruption and the patterns that you've been in into the ways of the kingdom. You are given that power and that authority through the Spirit. He goes on, he says, So, for this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith. What do you mean, add to my faith? Well, we start with faith. But he wants us to add things. What are these things he's adding? He's, they're fruit of the Spirit. And he's adding them as he goes. As the Spirit takes more possession of us, we become more like the Spirit. We become more like Jesus. We become more like the Father That means we add to our faith goodness. We add to our goodness knowledge, the knowledge of the holy. We add to the knowledge self-control, the ability to say no to sin, perseverance, godliness, mutual affection, and love. There's always more of God to be had. There's always more that the Spirit can bring as we yield more and more possession of our hearts to him. And then he goes on to say, because, for if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, if you can look back over your life and see more goodness, more faith, more knowledge, more self-control, more love, more mutual affection, then, you're, you're, then what will happen? Well, these things, they, they, these qualities of the Holy Spirit will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. So this is the picture of the Spirit at work and the transforming power that comes as the kingdom of God takes over more and more of our lives. Make sense? So now, that's question number one. How do I know I'm in the right part I'm the right kind of fish and flopping around in the net. The second thing, though, the second question, which we don't nearly spend as much time thinking about, is what about my neighbor? 
what about my neighbor? And we have discovered where the bread is, and we see people around us starving. What is a good neighbor? A good neighbor will go into that darkness and bring this news, right? I love how C.S. Lewis puts this, how we are with our neighbors. Wow. He says this, We walk every day on the razor edge between two incredible possibilities. It's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, people being made like Christ, to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day become a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. In other words, being part of the kingdom and the glory that comes with that, or being part of Satan's kingdom and the horror that comes with that, should grip us. It's a serious thing. And he goes on to say, all day long we are in some degree helping each other to one or other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. Said another way, there are no ordinary people. It is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. This does not mean that we are to be per- perpetually solemn. We must play, but our merriment must be of that kind, and it is in fact the merriest kind, which exists between people who have from the outset taken each other seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, no presumption. And our charity must be a real and costly love with a deep feeling for the sins in spite of which we love the sinner. No mere tolerance or indulgence which parodies love as flippancy parodies merriment. Next to the blessed sacrament, which we are going to take soon, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. Because they have that possibility of being here or being here. And you have the knowledge, we have the knowledge of moving them from here to here if God would choose to use us. So, among other things, as we go out in this series, we've talked about praying for our neighbors, we've talked about serving them, we've talked about listening to them, we've talked about warfare prayer, we've talked about sharing the gospel with three circles as a simple way to share a kingdom gospel. And today I want to introduce another tool, uh, which is, I'll call it your elevator story. Your elevator story is uh, that brief description of your life which opens up further conversation. And it comes best in a scenario where you are uh, walking with someone and you say, hey, what's your story? Tell me your God story. Or you're sitting having a coffee with them. It's not really an elevator ride. I just made an elevator story because it needs to be brief. Because if you start talking a monologue for half an hour, you're going to lose everybody. But, but if you keep it brief, 
you open up avenues of discussion and questions. So uh, it has four elements. What was your life like before Jesus? What happened when you met Jesus? What's your life been like after meeting Jesus? And some kind of an invitation. So if you uh, permit me, I just want to model a two-minute or so, two-and-a-half-minute personal elevator story as a way. But what I want to encourage you is to, if you have never done this, go home this tonight, begin today, write out your story, edit it, get all the rabbit trails out of it, and just tell your story. What has God done for you? And uh, use it. Be ready. Peter says, be ready to give a reason for your hope. So this is a very brief story of Dennis Beausejour, okay? All right. Here we go. So I grew up in a very poor family, and I somehow miraculously rose to the very highest levels of a major corporation. I had more money, power, prestige than I ever dreamed I would have. I had a wonderful wife. I had four wonderful kids. And one day, in Kobe, Japan, a 7.2 earthquake came through and nearly killed me. And that caused me to think about what I was doing with my life. And I began to realize that the depression and the anxiety and uh, the feeling of dread that I was carrying um, was uh, growing in my life. I went to a retreat in Hong Kong. And there I found out the reason for all that because I had violated God's laws. And the weight of sin was crushing me. And there I read in chapter 3 that God actually came to become a man to die on the cross to pay for that sin in my place. And then he rose from the grave to prove that he was, in fact, God. I embraced this story. I asked Jesus to forgive my sin. Um, I talked to my wife and I asked her to forgive my sin, which included adultery, gluttony, drunkenness, selfishness, and anxiety and depression that were just ruining me. And God began to change my life. And together, as as my wife forgave me, and we pledged ourselves and our families to the kingdom of God, to reorient our time, our talent, and our treasure towards the kingdom of God. We, We have four kids and seven grandkids, and they are pursuing God in their generation, in their way of doing that and raising up the grandkids in Christ. We've been all over the world in mission trips, and we've seen God do amazing things. We've seen God heal entire villages. We've seen God take a 10-year-old boy and who is deaf from birth and restore his hearing uh, in the name of Jesus. We've seen people overcome PTSD, addictions, uh, all kinds of uh, healings of marriages and families being restored. Jesus is transforming everything around us if you just look around. So maybe this is new to you. Maybe you would like to hear more, but I would love to work through the Jesus story with you to see how it might change your story and your destiny. Amen. Amen. Okay. So I've been doing this for a while, so... Don't worry. Practice amongst yourselves. But be ready to share your story and invite someone to get into Jesus' story and then 
uh, watch what God does as he transforms those individuals. So the worship team's going to come up. We're going to have prayer teams on each side. We're going to spend the last bit of our time together going through communion. And it is in that time of communion that I want us to experience the forgiveness of Christ, the grace of Christ, the sheer holiness of Christ, the cost it took to put his son through that agony on our behalf. And then uh, take the bread and the juice and maybe get together and pray uh, as families or with who you're here with. Get prayer. If, if you're here today and today's the day to start walking with Jesus, get prayer and then have communion and watch what God does. And we're, we've got Bibles on the Connect desk to help you with that journey with Christ. But that is, that is our prayer today. So let me go ahead and pray. Father, thank you for the parable of the net. Thank you for the sure judgment that is coming. Thank you, Lord, for preparing us for that, for uh, teaching us the truth. Thank you, Lord, for the way it brings us into a deeper knowledge of who you are, your holiness, your justice, your mercy, your grace, all in perfection all the time. And Lord, we, we thank you also, Lord, for the truth about our neighbors. And Lord, the opportunity that we have uh, to love on our neighbors. So come for prayer and the things that uh, God is doing in your heart right now, in your spirit. When Jesus took bread in Luke chapter 22, verse 19... He gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, his disciples, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. So, Father, we thank you for the body and blood of your Son given at great cost. We thank you for the warning issued by Jesus, the reminder that in his inclusiveness of invitation of all sinners, some will not fully follow him. So, Lord, as we examine ourselves and as we examine our lives with our neighbors, fill us up with your power, Lord. Get us ready to tell our stories. And, Lord, do a work in us today, even now, by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.